0: All right, let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. We thank you for the greatness of your love for us, Lord. We thank you uh, just for the great desire with which you've committed yourself to us, how great a father and husband you are, Lord. We pray that you'd help us to see your heart accurately and to know you deeply, Lord. We pray that you would protect us from misunderstandings and from stumblings, and we pray that we would get to know you. We thank you for your grace, and amen. All right, so today we are continuing our series called the GCF Vision. Uh, The vision, or the GCF Vision, is a term we use a lot, but we haven't had a thorough teaching on it in a while, or not since Greg was teaching at RCF. Uh, So this series is an attempt to uh, explain concisely yet thoroughly what exactly the GCF Vision is. So the GCF Vision is that there are certain aspects of Christianity that God wants Christians to rediscover and restore. And I I would summarize it as there being five of them. Uh, Having a a biblically complete understanding of, experience of, and presentation of the gospel. Being grace-based instead of performance-based. Being reformed and charismatic. Understanding the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church. And having a victorious eschatology. And again, I'm not saying that there are no churches that have these. There's plenty of churches that have one or two of these things or do well at one or two of them, but very few have all five of these things. But I believe that this is something God wants to restore, and over the next few decades, it's going to become more and more commonplace to have all five of these things. So the GCF vision is a vision of restoration. Uh, We believe the early church had these five aspects and that God wants to restore them to his entire church. So therefore, we seek to restore, um, rediscover and restore these aspects in our own lives and model them for others. So anyways, of... Can we just point out that you have a fill-in outline that you don't... Yes, thank you. By the way, today's handout in your bulletin is a fill-in-the-blank handout. I like to mix it up, keep everyone guessing. Sometimes we have fill-in-the-blanks, sometimes we don't. It really depends on how late I feel like staying up the night before. <laughs> but, um, but today's fill-in-the-blanks should be good. You, so anyways, of the five areas of the GCF vision, we are currently looking at being reformed and charismatic. Mm-hmm. So we have a subsection that I call the Strengths of Reformed Churches. So if you were to try to explain the difference between pop music and rock music to like someone who had never heard them before, to a non-American, you couldn't really do so concisely in one sentence because there's no single objective quality that makes music rock or pop. And um, Reformed and Charismatic are church cultures, and so I think it's easier for me to define them with a list of characteristics. So, first, we're going to look at the strengths of Reformed churches, which we'll be doing for another few weeks. Then, the strengths of Charismatic churches. And then, after that, we'll look at the strengths and the synergy that only comes from having a culture that's both Reformed and Charismatic. So, for the strengths of Reformed churches, there's four of them I want us to think about uh, having an emphasis on the five solas, which we talked about last week, having a biblical view of predestination and election, which we'll be talking about today holding to covenant theology rather than dispensationalism, and placing a high priority on regularly and thoroughly studying God's word. So today we're going to talk about having a biblical view of predestination and election. That's a big one. All right. So the, the Bible teaches predestination. This is a doctrine that comes from the Bible. The doctrine of predestination, basically, is the idea that God has pre-decided who he was going to save before he created the world. He knew the fall would happen, he planned to allow it to happen, and he decided uh, that he would send his son to die, and he decided whom he would intervene to save, but we'll get into that in more detail. But let's just look at two verses um, Two passages real quick to kind of give an overview. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And then let's look at Acts 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So that is an overview So the idea of predestination, it's a very important doctrine, and it has a lot of potential for misunderstandings. And we're going to try to cover a lot of them to avoid misunderstanding. So there are certain things that we have to understand in order to have a biblical understanding of predestination. So we're going to try to break those down and look at them in detail. So in your handout, there's a list of seven things that will help guide a person to arriving at a correct understanding of predestination. And those are also the the fill-in-the-blanks. So let's look at the first one. The first thing we have to understand. God has his moral will and his sovereign will. What do I mean by that? God has several things that he wills or that he desires. And sometimes, some of them seem to contradict each other. This is because there are certain things that God doesn't like or doesn't desire, such as sin or suffering, that in the big picture lead to a greater good. Mm -hmm. Therefore, sometimes God wills that evil should happen or wills to allow it to happen in order to accomplish a greater good that he desires. Mm -hmm. These two aspects of God's will the hating of sin and the desire to allow sin to happen for a greater good are often refer- referred to as his moral will and his sovereign will. Uh, some people call it his revealed will and his hidden will, or his will of command and will of decree. Uh, but no matter what you want to call it, we have to recognize that God hates sin and at the same time, he has a desire to allow it to happen, even though he could prevent it, because there is a greater good he wants to bring out of it. Let's look at some verses that demonstrate that. Let's look at Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph speaking to his brothers As for you, when you sold me into slavery, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God allowed it for good. God could have prevented it, but God intended to allow it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Let's also look at Exodus 4, verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So in In one sense, God really did want Pharaoh to let the people go. He wanted him to let the people go willingly. And in in another sense, God wanted Pharaoh to not let the people go and to be stubborn about it. Because God wanted to show his power through Pharaoh. And God's sovereign will, he desired to allow the fall to happen. He could have prevented the fall, but there was a greater good that he desired that would come from allowing the fall of Adam and Eve to happen. I want to read a quote from John Piper to hopefully help explain this some. The infinite complexity of the divine mind is such that God has the capacity to look at the world through two lenses. He can look through a narrow lens or through a wide angle lens when God looks at a painful or wicked event through his narrow lens, he sees the tragedy of the sin for what it is in itself, and he is angered and grieved. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone declares the lord ezekiel eighteen thirty two But when God looks at a painful or a wicked event through his wide angle lens, he sees the tragedy. Of the sin in relation to everything leading up to it and everything flowing out from it. He sees it in relation to all the connections and effects that form a pattern or mosaic stretching into eternity. This mosaic, in all its parts, good and evil, brings him delight. So we need to understand. These two aspects of God's will if we're going to have a biblical understanding of predestination. And that's because predestination involves the biblical idea that even though God desires all to be saved, in some sense, he is desired to not save everyone that he could save. We have to think about this. This is a difficult thing. We have to think about it. So we need to understand that God has his moral will and God has his sovereign will, and he is right to do so. You know, it's something we can somewhat easily understand in an experiential way. How many days do you wake up and not desire to go to work, but you still desire your paycheck? Every day. No, I'm kidding. Hopefully not every day. But, you know, this is something we experience. This, is, this happens to everyone. And it is not inglorious for God to have one desire that he gives precedence precedence over another of his desires. It is within his perfection. So the second idea we need to understand in order to really get predestination. God is committed to his glory above all else. So what I mean by that, out of all the things that God desires, there isn't anything he desires or values more than to manifest and enjoy his glory. Now I want to explain what I mean by glory. Uh, We have a a definition slide. So glory can be referring to God being praised by creatures, but it also uh, means more than that we get that slide glory can also mean magnificence or great beauty or awesomeness and that's how I'm going to be using it uh, throughout the majority of this sermon so when I say that God doesn't have any greater desire than to enjoy his glory I'm talking about him enjoying his own beauty and awesomeness So this is a really big idea, and, uh, and we're going to try to work through it piece by piece. So let's start with the basic. God enjoys his glory. Let's just start with that. So one of the ways that we see God's enjoyment of his glory, his beauty, his excellence, is to look at the Father's delight in God the Son. Let's look at Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he spoke to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, being Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power, and after making purification, for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. So when the father enjoys, and we know uh, from other passages of scripture that the father does indeed joy the son, the father has great delight in the son, when God the father enjoys any of the qualities of God the son, he is enjoying his, the beauty and awesomeness of Yahweh. God is delighting in the glory of God. and He's delighting in the beauty and majesty of God when the Father delights in any of the aspects of God the Son. So God's deli- the Father's delight in the Son is his delight in the glory of God. If that makes sense. So God greatly enjoys his glory, his beauty, his magnificence. Anyone who's spent a significant amount of time in worship can know from experience that God's glory is enjoyable on its own level like nothing else has the potential to be. Let's look at Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The fullness of joy in God's presence comes from his beauty and his glory. Let's look at Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Let's also look at Psalm 50, verse 2. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. God is the perfection of beauty. There is nothing more beautiful or excellent or glorious or awesome than God. And the deeper we come to know him, the deeper we know experientially that that's true. When you say beauty, it's not exactly like a physical thing, though, is it? Because, like, when... right. It is not necessarily uh, physical. There is an aspect of God's glory that's experiential that comes from being uh, in proximity to him, but a lot of his glory might be in some sense conceptual or relational. Uh, But all in all, throughout and throughout, God's glory is um, enough to bring endless delight when properly seen. And God has endless delight in his glory. When you think about it, This makes sense. It almost has to be. It only makes sense that God should have great delight in himself. Or else, existing from all eternity past and outside of time would be as boring as could be and would be torture and a worthless existence. So God existed before the world did, forever. And uh, if he didn't have delight within his triune self that would be a worthless, miserable existence. I don't think that's the case. We know it's not the case. Let's look at John 17, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Before anything existed but God and God alone existed, the Father was with the Son and the Holy Spirit and they all had great and endless delight in each other. Supreme happiness and relationship that they had with each other. Supreme happiness in the glory, the excellence of God. So since God enjoys his beauty and excellence, he necessarily enjoys manifesting his beauty and excellence. He enjoys working it out. He enjoys displaying it. If you enjoy your own ability to cook well, and I like to pretend that I do, (laughs) uh, but if you enjoy your own ability to cook well, you would get more enjoyment of your ability to cook well by cooking something awesome and showing it and looking at it than you would by just theoretically knowing and you're thinking to yourself, I can cook well. <laughs> right? That makes sense? You get more enjoyment of the excellencies that you might have when they're manifest. God the Father gets more enjoyment of the beauty of God, of God when he sees God the Son being merciful to sinners. More enjoyment than if he just theoretically knew that God the Son is merciful. That is why he created the world. So I hope that makes sense. That's worth thinking about over and over. I also want to point out God enjoys his own glory regardless of whether or not creatures recognize it. He does not He does enjoy when creatures do recognize his glory, but his enjoyment in his glory is apart from that. God the Father enjoys God the Son, and if nobody ever praised God the Son, he would still totally love and delight in God the Son. He'd be supremely satisfied in him. That's very important to understand. I also want to point out real quick, because I want us to avoid misunderstandings, that it is not prideful for God to enjoy his own glory. Pride has to do with thinking higher of yourself than you should, but all God's thoughts about his own beauty are totally accurate, because he's all-knowing. He doesn't overestimate the excellence of his beauty, and he doesn't underestimate the excellence of his beauty. Not not only that, but God's delight in his own glory isn't even necessarily self-centered, because God is triune. The Father delights in the glory of God in the Son and in the Spirit, and they enjoy the glory of God in each other and in the Father. So it is not even necessarily or particularly self-centered. God is not prideful to have such a delight and a priority on his own glory and the enjoyment of it. All right, so we established that, that God enjoys his own glory. Uh, let's move a bit deeper. So we're looking at the idea that God is committed to his glory above all else, and we've, we've seen that God enjoys his own glory. I want to move on to say that there are only two possibilities worth considering for what God cares about most. It is either the well-being of humans or it is enjoying and manifesting his glory. I really don't think there's another option worth considering. Um, but I have two reasons why it's, I would say it's worth believing that it's his glory that he cares about most. Number one, There were times when God spared people explicitly for his own sake, for his glory. Let's look at Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Let's also look at Isaiah 43, verse 25. I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And lastly, let's look at Ezekiel 36, verses 22, 23, and 32. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Now at this point, I kind of want to stop and clarify something. Um, I don't take those verses from Ezekiel to mean that God never does anything for our sake, Because there are other passages where he does do things for our sake. In John 17, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus mentions how he sanctifies himself for the sake of his people. Mm -hmm. I think this passage in Ezekiel is a particular instance where God is not acting for Israel's sake. It's a particular instance, but the fact that he acts for his glory's sake and not for their sake in this instance shows that in general, there must be something that God cares about more than the well-being of humans, namely his glory, or else he would have acted for their sake and told them. So that's the first reason I believe God is more committed to his glory. There's times where he spared people explicitly for his own sake. The second reason I believe God cares about his glory more than the well-being of humans is that uh, God could have saved everyone, but he decided not to. Let's look at Matthew 11, verses 21 through 22. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. God could have sent a prophet to do the same mighty works Jesus did, but he chose not to. This is unavoidable. We have to recognize this. Jesus, by the omniscience and all-knowing of God, knew that if a prophet would have been sent to do the same mighty works that he did to Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented, and God chose not to. Let's also look at Romans 9, verses 21 through 23. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which have been prepared beforehand for glory? Paul didn't say, in order so that humans might have genuine freedom in order to choose to love God or not. That is not why God would make vessels for honorable use and for dishonorable use. Paul says to show his wrath and to make his power known. And again, this is difficult, but we're going to get to certain things that I believe make this easier to accept. So hold on. But anyways, let's keep showing the point. Let's look at Proverbs 16, verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble, or the day of judgment, so that his glory might be shown. God is glorified in his justice being shown. That's the way he manifests his excellence, through actually acting out justice, and justice not just being some theoretical concepts that he knows about. Without creation and without sin, God's justice cannot be shown. So God is glorified in his justice being shown. And that is why he would choose to not save everyone, even though he could save everyone. So I believe those are two reasons to believe that God is committed to his glory above all else. We need to understand this if we're going to have a biblical understanding of predestination. Because this is the reason God would predestine to save some and not others. And Without understanding why, predestination will never make sense biblically. And that would be a problem. Alright, so we've shown that. Within staying under this point, I want to point out that God is not wrong or unjust or even unreasonable to have such a great desire for his glory. I've got two reasons for that. Number one, he's God. God is the most important being in the universe and all that exists, exists for him. Let's look at Romans 11 verse 36. For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. Let's look at Colossians 1 verse 16. For by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. There isn't anything that exists that doesn't exist for God, for his sake. Since all things exist for God's sake, he is the most important being in existence. And since he is the most important being in existence, it's only right that he should care about himself and his glory more than anything. Now that can still be hard to accept because, you know, we're, we're fallen and we just have a hard time understanding that someone else is more important than us. But let me give another reason that makes it a bit easier to accept. God is triune. So I think we tend to overestimate, we tend to have a hard time thinking, seeing that God is not unreasonable to have such a great desire for his glory, but the fact that God is triune, not only that he's God, is all the more reason why he should have such a priority on his glory. It is loving for God to put God first because he's three persons in one being. When God seeks His own glory, it is each member of the Trinity loving the other. It would be unloving for God to not be committed to His glory above all else, or to their glory above all else. To word it as Genesis one did, because this is um, because God's shared glory is the deepest enjoyment of each member of the Trinity. If God were to care for human well-being more than for his glory, that'd be as if I cared about the cattle that I had more than the happiness of my son. That would be despicable. So God is triune, and that makes God's love for his own glory, his commitment to it, loving. So that. Um, we covered that God is committed to his own glory above all else. We have to understand that if we want to arrive at a biblical understanding of predestination. The next thing we need to understand, God predestines everything that happens ever. Let me explain what I mean by predestine. For everything that ever happens, God either caused it to happen directly when it wouldn't otherwise happen or he knew that it would happen yet decided beforehand that he would not prevent it from happening even though he could so in this way no matter what happens ever god has predecided that it would happen that's a necessary logical outworking of god being all knowing and all powerful and I would also argue that in this way, God does not force anyone to sin, but still predecides what will happen and what won't happen. Because God knows what would happen and chooses to allow it or to prevent it. And if he wants something to happen that wouldn't happen on its own, he'll directly intervene to cause it to happen. And he knows what he's going to decide. He's known since before the creation of the earth. Well, let's look at some verses that show this. Let's look at Proverbs 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, or the dice are rolled, but its every decision is from the Lord. This isn't justifying using lots for everything. I wouldn't use that to make my stock purchases, and I wouldn't encourage you to either. This is saying God is sovereign over everything that happens ever. Let's look at Ephesians 1, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in accordance with the counsel of his will. So this right here is a description of God. This verse describes God as a being who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And lastly, let's look at Matthew 10, verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Some translations say, apart from the knowledge of your father. Some translations say, apart from the consent of your father. Nonetheless, you know, none of them could happen without either. Nothing ever happens without God's knowledge and consent. In So the fact that God is all-knowing and all-powerful necessitate the idea that he has predestined everything, because God has chosen what he will allow to happen and what he won't allow to happen. So whatever does happen, God chose it. Whether or not he caused it in some sense, again, God does not force anyone to sin. God is not the offer of evil. He chooses to allow it to happen. But nonetheless, in that sense, God has pre decided what will happen and what will not happen. And he knew before he created the world what he was going to choose in endless detail. All right, so we need to understand that God predestines everything that ever happens, ever. The fourth thing that we need to understand. No one can come to God on their own. Let's look at John 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Then let's also look in the same chapter at John 6, 63 through 65. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted by my Father. Let's also look at Matthew 16, verse 17. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is saying this to Peter in response to Jesus. Jesus asks the disciples, who is it that you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the son of God. And Jesus responds, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you. You did not figure this out on your own in the power of your own flesh. And that's because no one can see Jesus for who he really is without the Holy Spirit revealing it to them. Having a sin nature blinds us so that we can't see what's there sometimes. We need God to reveal it to us. No one can see Jesus for who he is without the Holy Spirit revealing to them. No one will naturally see Jesus as worth trusting for salvation. Because usually, naturally, we don't even see that we need salvation. No one's naturally going to see that Jesus is trustworthy for salvation. And also, no one is naturally going to see him as worth submitting to. Because we all want to do what we want to do. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Spirit. But I think a lot of demons know that Jesus is Lord. And they probably say it. So what does this mean? They can't truly call him Lord and mean it in their hearts because they refuse to submit to him. No one except by being revealed to them by the Holy Spirit would ever see Jesus as worth submitting to do. We all want what we want, and we know it. So no one can come to God apart from divine empowerment. So it's, it's important that we understand that. The fifth thing we need to understand to arrive at a biblical understanding of predestination. God has elected those whom he will save. Let's look at Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God knew beforehand, before he created the world, that, he, that we would exist, and he knew that we would never come to him unless he intervened by the work of the Holy Spirit. And he pre-decided, knowing that before he created the world, that he was going to intervene, that he would work on our behalf to open our eyes and to cause us to be willing to trust him and submit to him, even though we wouldn't an otherwise. God has predecided that he would do a work in our hearts and make us willing to accept the gospel, even though we wouldn't otherwise be. Because we would refuse to see that our sin needs demands that we need saving, and we would lie to ourselves and justify a little bit of non-submission here, a little bit of non-submission there, and not actually repent, not actually ever acknowledge him as Lord. God knew that we would do that, and he pre he would intervene by the Holy Spirit. Praise him for his grace. Hallelujah. Let's look at Second Thessalonians 2 verse 13 but we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers beloved by the lord because god chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth let's also look at first peter 1 verses 1 and 2 peter an apostle of jesus christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So that's the fifth thing we have to understand, that God has elected those whom he will save. The sixth idea I want us to understand about predestination. God does not elect anyone based on merit. It is purely because of his grace and it is for his glory. Let's look at Romans 9, verses 10 through 13. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything, Anything, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So God does not elect anyone based on merit. Our salvation is purely by God's grace, and God's predeciding to intervene, to open our eyes, to see what we would not otherwise see, has nothing to do with merit. It is just God's grace, and it is for his glory. So the seventh idea that we have to understand if we want to arrive at a biblical understanding Of predestination. God preserves those whom He elects. Let's look at Galatians 5, verses 2 through 4. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So Paul seems to mention this idea of falling away from grace. And in some sense, it's a theoretical idea. So here's what I mean. The only way a person can fall away from the faith is if they weren't truly converted to begin with. And we're going to see that in the next three passages. Let's look at Matthew 24, verses 23 through 24. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. So as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. He bothers to say, if possible, to say that it's not possible. Jesus wasn't questioning in himself, hmm, I wonder if leading away the elect is possible. And then ask it to his disciples, no. That's not what happened. Jesus knew it was impossible. It's only theoretically possible, but it's impossible. Let's look at John 6, verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose, lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. We talked earlier about God's moral will and his sovereign will, and this obviously isn't referring to God's moral will, or else it would go without saying. Jesus is talking about the Father's sovereign will. And lastly, let's look at 1 John 5, verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God, that is Jesus, protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. The evil one cannot touch him. So God preserves those whom he elects. So those seven ideas should hopefully guide us to arrive at a correct understanding of predestination hopefully with very little misunderstandings. Now, the problem is misunderstandings are so easy to come by, so we're going to address some of those in a minute. But first, I I do want to say it's it's very important that we do understand predestination. Without a, a biblical understanding of predestination, our view of the gospel will have serious contradictions in it. Serious contradictions. And if we don't address them, they might eventually start to shake our faith. And they also cause us to have a weaker presentation of the gospel to unbelievers. Not only that, but we need to understand God's commitment to his glory if we are to truly understand the heart of God. So so this message is a very full message, and there are several important things that I just briefly addressed in like 10 seconds. So I would kind of recommend re-listening to this. I spent much more time than I usually do preparing for this sermon. But anyways, understanding predestination is very important. So let's get to the next section. Avoiding misunderstandings. There's two big potential misunderstandings that we could have developed at this point. And I I really don't want us to to have developed them. Um, So there's two things I want us to understand. Two things I want us to grasp. Number one, God still has strong and genuine desire for intimacy with us. Earlier, we talked about how God is committed to his glory above all else, and I I want us to all understand that. But I don't want that understanding to diminish our view of God's love or to diminish our view of his desire for intimacy with us. I want us to understand how they work together. Even though God's greatest desire is for his glory, he has intense desire for intimacy, for relational closeness with his children. His desire for his glory, is, it fuels, it ignites his desire for intimacy with us. And let me explain why. The first one is that out of desire for God's glory, he wants us to know him. He enjoys us glorifying him. And we can glorify him more when we know him deeply. Let's look at John 17 verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, my beauty, my excellence that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. God desires passionately that we know his glory. He desires passionately that we know him and know him deeply. But if that's all there is, that's not quite desire for intimacy because that's rather one-sided. I really want us to understand that God also wants to know us intimately. And that might sound complicated because God is all-knowing. But all-knowing does not mean all-experiencing. That's why he created the world. God wants, us, God wants to know us intimately and experientially because he enjoys his own glory in us. So we looked earlier about how God's greatest delight is in his glory and his own beauty and excellence and his the various aspects of his nature, but he made us in his image. Mm-hmm. And we, just as God the Father enjoys seeing the glory of Yahweh in God the Son. God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit enjoy seeing the glory of Yahweh reflected back to them in us. And they they enjoy it deeper through knowing us intimately. God wants that relationship to be intimate. He enjoys his glory in us. So, I don't want anyone to get the idea that just because you know, God's greatest desire is for his glory that he doesn't desire intimacy with us. That's all the more reason to believe that God desires intimacy with us. So the second thing I want to say in order to avoid creating misunderstandings, even though, and this is very important, even though God saves us for his glory, his love for us is still very genuine. We, we really need to see this. So in case I haven't already said it, God saves us for the sake of his glory. Let's look at Ephesians 1, verses 11 through 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things and according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So he predestined us so that we might be to the praise of his glory. God does save us for his glory. But I want to point out, God died for us out of desire for his glory and out of genuine desire for our well-being. God is fully capable of doing good to us for the sake of his glory and still genuinely for our sake. Let's look at 2 Kings 19.34. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. God is fully capable of doing good to us for the sake of his glory and genuinely for our sakes. And he does. Let's look also later in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So even though in Ephesians 1, Paul says that God saved us for his glory, in chapter 2, Paul says that God saved us because of his love for us and they are both true. We really need to understand that. Ephesians 2.4 is clear. God did he died for his people out of love and also for the sake of his glory. We're going to talk about that even further in just a bit. So that's, One idea that will help us to see that even though God saves us for his glory, his love for us is still very genuine. There's two more ideas that will help us understand that, that will make that clear. The second one is, God's love for his people is different than his love for not his people. It's different than his love for the non-elect. He does have love for everyone, but his love for his bride is different than his love for the non-elect. So after I first accepted the idea of predestination, I started to really struggle with God's love because I started to assume that God's love for me was the same as for the non-elect. And even though he does have a level of love for the non-elect, it's not enough that he would save them. So that really kind of wrecked my view of God's love, and I struggled with that for years, and I really don't want to create that for anyone else. But God's love for the elect is much greater. Let's look at John 17, verse 23. Jesus in the high priestly prayer, praying to the Father, I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The Father's love for his chosen, adopted children, he loves us even as he loves Christ, who is God. God's love for his people is much greater than his love for not his people. It's a very great love. So the third idea I want us to understand in relation to God's love still being very genuine is You know, you might ask at this point, well, why is God's love for his people different than his love for the non-elect? And it's because God, out of desire for his glory, has bound his heart to us. It's because of his desire for his glory, he has bound his heart to us. Let's look at Deuteronomy 10, verse 15. Let the the Lord set his affection on your fathers to love them. And he chose their descendants after them. You over all the peoples as it is this day. I want to think about the wording there. He words it that way for a reason. The Lord set his affection on your fathers to love them. The Lord set his affection on us to love us. God made a choice. He committed himself to desiring the well-being of his people with a passionate and intense heartfelt desire. I want to read a quote from J.I. Packer's Knowing God. We have in previous chapters made the point that God's end or God's purpose in all things is his own glory. That he should be manifested, known, admired, and adored. The statement is true, but it is incomplete. It needs to be balanced by a recognition that through setting his love on human beings, God has voluntarily bound up his final happiness with theirs. It is not for nothing that the Bible habitually speaks of God as the loving father and husband of his people. It follows from the very nature of these relationships that God's happiness will not be complete till all his beloved ones are finally out of trouble, till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. God was happy without humans before they were made. He would have continued happy had he simply destroyed them after they had sinned. But as it is, he set his love on particular sinners and this means that by his own free and voluntary choice, he will not know perfect unmixed happiness again till he has brought every one of them to heaven. He has an effect resolved that henceforth for all eternity, his happiness shall be conditional upon ours." I really don't want anyone to develop a misunderstanding about God's love due to correctly understanding His desire for His glory. His desire for His glory is all the more reason to believe in the genuine heartfeltness of His love for us. So that brings us to our communion meditation. God's glorious love for his church. We examined before how God is, more committed to, God is not more committed to anything than he is to his glory. But we need to see the greatness of his love within that. God does all that he does with the ultimate end being the enjoyment of his glory. But God's love for his people is a desire that burns deeply and passionately in his heart. God has a level of love for all people. That's why he grieves at the death of the wicked, and on some level, genuinely mourns over the eternal suffering of the non-elect. God does have a love for all people, but his love for his church is far more intense. We looked earlier at how God voluntarily committed his heart to desiring the well-being of his people. I want to make it clear that the intensity of that desire is greater than the human mind can comprehend. Paul says in Ephesians 3 that God's love for his church surpasses knowledge. And Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. God can turn the heart of a king wherever he wants, and he can turn his own heart wherever he wants. So whatever God wants to desire, he's going to desire. Amen. God has committed himself to desiring our well-being with such an intense desire that he could gladly die for us while we hate him. And that is fantastic, but it gets deeper than that. Because in that case, I'm talking about God the Son dying for us. Which, but there's a father-son relationship there. God's desire for our well-being is so great that God the Father, with all his fatherly delight in and love for God the Son, would give up his Son to die on behalf of ruined sinners who hate him. And they both did it gladly so that we could end up with unending joy greater than we could know even though we hated him. I'm sure we can't hardly imagine what it's like to lose a child as a father. But I'm going to read this again. God's desire for our well-being is so great that God the Father, with all his fatherly delight and love for God the Son, would give up his Son to die on behalf of ruined sinners. And they both did it gladly so that we could end up with unending joy greater than we could know even though we hated him. God's love for his church is intense and it is glorious and it will never be stopped or impeded or hindered or diminished in any way ever. And God wants us to know that and be deeply convinced of it. So let's praise him as we come to the table.